Welcome to the Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. I'm Sharon Betters. When our 16-year-old son, Mark, and his friend, Kelly, were in a fatal car accident, Chuck and I and our family were desperate for someone ahead of us in this journey to come alongside of us and help us navigate our grief and really, most importantly, to give us hope. We did receive help and hope from those other bereaved parents, and we knew we wanted to be that same source of hope to others coming behind us, no matter what the broken place was. The vision of our Help and Hope podcast is to be a safe place for hurting people to find support and guidance as they navigate their own turned upside down lives and broken places, whether caused by grief, broken friendships, wayward children, adultery, terminal illness, sex trafficking, sexual abuse, depression, wherever the darkness is the greatest, and sometimes where it's easier to find hope in the privacy of your own home or on a walk or while you're driving your car and listen to the podcast. Today, my husband Chuck is the host of today's Help and Hope podcast. And in this conversation, he is going to address a worldwide crisis that is destroying families, marriages, and individuals. And that crisis is pornography. In part one of these conversations, Rebecca Hanna, who is the director of our Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling Center, joins Chuck as the two of them talk with Jonathan Holmes and Deepak Rajou. Jonathan and Deepak have co-authored two books on pornography, Rescue Plan and Rescue Skills. They are both biblical counselors and draw on their own research and experience as biblical counselors to offer concrete information and guidance on how to help pornography users in diverse circumstances to overcome addiction. Do you know someone who is struggling with this particular sin? Unfortunately, it's likely that you do. But also, unfortunately, you may not know how to help. In these two conversations, counselors Deepak and Jonathan provide biblical strategies for guiding a fellow believer toward recovery. Make sure that you listen to both parts one and two. And now let's join Chuck for this important Help and Hope podcast. Welcome to part two of the Help and Hope podcast with guests Deepak Raju and Jonathan Holmes. Now make sure to listen to part one. Deepak and Jonathan wrote two books, Rescue Plan and Rescue Skills. We couldn't cover everything in part one, so I'm grateful they have returned to continue our conversation. In part one, we focused on their book, Rescue Plans. In this interview, we are delving into the second book, which is Rescue Skills. Jonathan, let me start with you. Why did you feel it was necessary for this second book And what's the difference between the rescue plans and the rescue skills? Right. Well, thanks so much, Chuck. It's a a great question, and we get it a lot as it relates to the two books. But if in rescue plan we offer the plan, we kind of detail out those four essential ingredients that we talked about in terms of these four ingredients are present when a person is prone to act out in a moment of temptation. And if we kind of cover some different stages where different struggles with pornography take place, 
Rescue skills is on the other side of that, where we really talk about kind of in two halves, essential skills to help the struggler and then essential skills for the helper themselves to have as they're helping the struggler. So the first 13 chapters, as it were, are really designed for the helper. So you could pick this book up. You could read the individual chapters as standalones for themselves to really help sharpen your skills, uh, sharpen your competencies. And then the last set of chapters are really aimed at the struggler themselves, and they could be read too by the struggler. Deepak, you talk about the deadly triad. What is that? Yeah, the the deadly triad, what we often don't acknowledge is in the midst of porn struggles, that a struggler's conscience is deadened by the effect of porn over the course of time. And so the first time a porn struggler reaches out, the alarm bells flash off and they have the, the warning that God has built into them, which is a moral conscience that helps them to understand that what they're doing is something they should not be doing. But porn silences those alarms over the course of time. So the, the, the deadly triad starts with a deadened conscience that's, that's part of the problem. But then often what we describe is that the, the key to understanding an addiction is in understanding disordered desire, ruling desire, the carnal desires that have overtaken a person's life. That's the second part of the deadly triad. So a deadened conscience and the ruling disordered desires. And then the third part are the gospel affections that we all have when we're converted to Christ that also get silenced out, deadened, dampened by the effect of porn. So what do you have? No conscience, no gospel affections, and carnal desires that have overtaken your life. That combination of those three is what you see when someone's addicted um, overall. And the gospel affections that should drive me to the cross are dampened, they're shallow, they're not there as present, and part of our goal is to rebuild them uh, overall. The ruling desires, the carnal selfish desires that have overtaken my life, we're going to starve those out so that they don't take over your life anymore. And the Holy Spirit, Lord willing, in the midst of all that, will quicken the conscience, revive it and bring it back to life. So dead consciences in Christ can be brought back to life. And that's what we see as we see people recover. That takes me to the next question. Those who are addicted to pornography will develop over time a distorted view of the opposite sex. How can rescue skills help cultivate a healthy biblical view of the opposite sex? Yeah, one of the things that we wanted to recognize is the fact that just because someone has gotten over an addiction doesn't mean they have caught God's vision for sexuality. And when someone is in a porn addiction, they consume, they exploit, and they objectify someone of the opposite sex. That affects and changes their disposition towards sexuality. And that's not something that just magically goes away when you learn to fight a porn addiction. And God's beauty, God's, God is beautiful himself. Not physically, because God is not physical. He's a spirit. But in his moral excellencies, God is beautiful unto himself in his character, in his majesty, in his glory. And so, therefore, he made a beautiful, pleasurable, delightful world to be in. 
And we, we want people to grasp what God intends, which is especially sex is intended for the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, and there are boundaries that God sets for our good. And we want people to see the goodness of all that and get a vision for all that, what God intends. But that, that's a process. It doesn't come automatically after you've struggled with porn. And so you have to begin to work towards getting to see God as beautiful and then what he's given us as beautiful too. So we want to work with someone to recover that vision. And it's not just an intellectual thing. It's a thing of the heart in, in, in loving God. So, you know, it starts by having conversations about who God is and what he intends for us. But it also comes that, you know, I'm, I'm a, a favorite ice cream consumer. I love chocolate, especially as a flavor. But, you know, the most consumed flavor is vanilla. <laughs> I was surprised <laughs> when I read that statistic. But then I tasted a pure vanilla bean ice cream from a homemade variety. And I just thought, mm, now I understand why people love <laughs> this flavor. But that's, that's a little bit of a taste of, of God's delight as he gives us and taste and pleasure. And, you know, sexuality is a gift from God. And being able to enjoy that, it's a gift from God. And yet we want to take that for granted. Pornography distorts that especially in the midst of an addiction, we want to help people recover from that, th that distortion, which is consuming other people, exploiting other people, and objectifying other people as a way to describe what happens. You guys talk a lot in both books about accountability. And it is clearly a core value for helping rescue the person from the addiction of pornography. What does a good biblical accountability look like? Right. Well, in Rescue Skills, we dedicate an entire chapter to it, and we list a lot of different characteristics about good accountability. We talk about the fact that good accountability is tough, it's consistent, it's local, it's communal, it's mature. But one of the things I would want to say about accountability is that Accountability is only as good as the relationship that the accountability is embedded in. And so if people are looking for just an accountability relationship, if they're only looking for someone who will, quote unquote, ask them about if they've looked at pornography or engaged in pornography, I think in our experience, like those types of relationships, while maybe set out with good intentions, they're, they're rarely long lasting because the center of that relationship is based on something that's very difficult to maintain. And so what we would like to see is good accountability relationships that are centered on Christ and that are centered on growing together in Christ. And accountability is, is one part of that. It's not the whole of the relationship. And so, you know, all three of us have probably heard stories or maybe even been involved in accountability relationships where you start off with good intentions. I'm going to check in with you every week on, you know, did you eat this? Did you exercise? Did you look at porn or whatever topic it might be that you need accountability on? But that relationship really needs to be more broad based than just that. And another thing, too, I would say about accountability is accountability doesn't change hearts, right? Only the Holy Spirit and only God's word can truly change hearts. Accountability can put us into a better position where we can respond in a godly way, but you can lie to your accountability partner. You can choose to be dishonest with your accountability partner. So accountability partners, I think a lot of times are discussed and kind of seen as a silver bullet. 
in a struggle with pornography. And it's not that. It's something that is definitely going to be a part, I think, of your restoration and your repentance and in and just your quest to become more godly and to follow Christ. But we don't want to sink everything into that relationship in and of itself to the exclusion of the gospel and an exclusion to what Christ has called us to. Could you both respond to this question? Imagine a man whose conscience has been pricked and he is determined that he is going to overcome the addiction. In the first interview, we talked about whether the wife should be involved in his accountability. Let's revisit that. What role should the spouse play in the development of a good, solid biblical accountability for the repentant husband? Yeah, I you know I can take a step here. I I think one of you're asking two questions there, Chuck. Can a wife be an accountability partner and hold her husband accountable in this in this particular struggle? I think the answer is yes. It is possible. The second question, though, is I think a question of wisdom of should she? Is she the best? position to be able to serve in that role. And and while there's always going to be nuances uh, to every different case and every particular struggle, I would say more often than not, I, I would think that that's probably not the best position for her primary role is as a wife, as a helper to her husband. And to put her into a position where she is serving in a quote-unquote accountability role, where she is checking in on uh, her husband in that particular area, I think probably carries with it more difficulty and hardship for her than it does benefit. So another way of saying it might be this, you know, as as the husband is maybe detailing and talking about particular struggles that he's going through, uh, some of those things are probably going to involve things that he's seen, things that he's viewed, things that he's done. And if his wife were his primary accountability partner, that could present, I would think, a significant point of struggle for her, just as different images, thoughts, details are now set into her mind that, while not impossible to overcome, might be really difficult and might stand in the way of the development of a healthy relationship. Now, should the wife in general be kept apprised of what's going on in her husband's life? Is she able to ask questions of him, the use of his time, energy, and resources, et cetera? Absolutely. But this is really where I think, you know, a, a fellow friend that's of the same gender is going to be helpful. A Bible study leader, a fellow worker, a colleague, a, an elder, a pastor, a next door neighbor, someone who, again, the, the audience of these two books, what it was designed for is just everyday helpers that are involved in the lives of these individuals. I, I would personally think that, that they're probably going to be a little bit better suited for that particular task. Deepak, do you want to weigh in on that? Uh, except to say, Jonathan hit it the nail right on the head. This is why I write books with him. I, I love his answer. I mean, I just affirm everything he said in in regards to the role of the spouse. So we want the spouse to play a part. Yeah, we we, we don't we don't think ignorance is a good position for the spouse in regards to marriage relationship because their goal is to be an ally with their spouse against their sin. That's a fundamental part you do when you're married to someone, and yet there's a trust element that gets quickly degraded if they bear the weight of the accountability as the primary accountability partner. I know very few things that degrade trust this quickly than porn struggles do. And so therefore, Jonathan hit the nail right on the head. It's a wisdom issue. 
Should they be involved? Yeah, but so of course they should be involved in their spouse's sin. Should they be the primary person? That's where we're putting the emphasis on. Right. No, we, we think someone of the same gender should bear the weight of it. And yet the spouse should be able to have open access to that person and their husband or wife in asking whatever they need to ask overall. And there's a temptation to be a cop, to yeah. check your spouse all the time uh, in, 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 out of fear that they are going to do something again. And you just got to be careful about that temptation because it can lead you to control rather than trust in the Lord. But trust in the Lord doesn't mean ignorance and being disengaged also. Right. So we're trying to find a wise balance of the two. Deepak, can you ever imagine a scenario where the husband would not tell the wife even about the pornography, let alone to become accountable to her as a partner? Well, I mean, the, the only scenario I imagine is if the husband is just showing up and unloading on her or the husband, uh, the, the accountability partner for the sake of just getting it off his chest, but he has no consideration of what he's doing. So I've had husbands show up and they're so quick to confess, they dump it all on their wife and it demolishes her emotionally. And they had no sensitivity to where she's at that day, what she's wrestling with, what, what, the, what the burdens are of her heart. So just, uh, I would say a time breather, like don't rush to just tell everyone it's the opposite end of hiding. They're so quick to confess to a number of people across the board. It's like a catharsis to get it off their chest, but they're not thinking through, they're not thinking through how they handled their sin. But is there a scenario where a guy should hide it from his spouse and his accountability partners? No, I don't think so. I don't think the Bible gives him room to hide his sin like that. So if you're talking about, is there some absolute situation where he gets to not tell them that he's struggled? No, I don't, I don't know where scripture leaves room for him to hide with his sin. I, I think he needs to be honest with it. And in the opposite, quick and immediate repentance generally to accountability partners. So the, 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 the person of the same gender and not just one, usually you want one or two other men, if you're a guy, one or two other women, if you're a woman involved in your life. And, you know, something simple as, hey, if I meet him on Monday, but I fall on Friday, well, I'm going to text him right away and say, I fell. I need you to know because I need to get it out in the light as fast as possible. Because fear of man gets in the way of confessing. The longer you wait, the more fear of man kicks in and begins to creep in and whisper the little lies like, you don't need to tell people. You don't need to say anything. You're going to be okay. God will forgive you. Don't worry about it. And that, that gets in the way of being honest, but get it out there as quick as possible to your accountability and let them help you think about the best timing and the most loving way to explain it to your spouse. And generally, you should agree with your spouse what that kind of framework is. Something you can talk to your, your husband and wife about is, if I do fall, what are the parameters for a marriage for me to confess to you? Um, so there's an agreement on how this is going to look like, and then you need to honor your word. Let's imagine someone is listening who is considering confessing to his spouse that he has an addiction to pornography. What would you tell him? Well, you know, it's a good question. And, you know, all of the things that we've already talked about and said, I would say would inform, you know, the answer to this question. But one of the first caveats I would offer is 
before you confess to your spouse, have you confessed before the Lord? And in Psalm 51, it says, you know, David, as he's going before the Lord, you know, in the midst of not only sexual sin, but a lot of other sins, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, he's not saying that he's not sinned against other people, but just, I think David ultimately has a right understanding of the weight of his sin before a holy God. And a lot of times, as Dee was saying, we can have like a catharsis when it comes to confession. We can have this sense of, yeah, I'm going to tell my spouse and kind of get it off my chest when we haven't even done that before the Lord. And so I would really caution a spouse before he has come to a spouse or an accountability partner. Have you gone before the Lord? Have you confessed this before the Lord? Now, the, the comfort that we have is when we confess our sins, we serve a God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the movement and the motivation to come to God is we know the character of God. We know that he is a gracious and a merciful and a forgiving God. And it's out of that motivation and out of that understanding that I think once we confess to the Lord and we pursue repentance, that it does put us into a much better frame of mind and body to come and then speak to our spouse. Now, in terms of a confession and a disclosure to my spouse, I think that those two things need to be differentiated. A disclosure typically is a detailing of events, timelines, chronologies, content, etc. And I would say in terms of disclosure, I would want to be a bit more brief there, whereas confession is more related to our actions against our spouse. What have we done? Where have we forsaken the marriage covenant? And so I would say I would want to start there with confession. I would want the spouse to acknowledge how they have sinned against their spouse. But some of the disclosure of details that, again, I think at times can put unhelpful thoughts and images uh, into my spouse's mind, to me, that doesn't really help consider them, consider their interest and their particular space in the marriage. And so, again, as Deepak was saying, they they should ultimately, the spouse has access to those details if they choose to ask those questions. But I would say a discretion and a discernment about how to disclose those details really should be thought through. Um, I've seen a lot of spouses unhelpfully harmed in that disclosure process where a lot of details about the types of pornography that's being viewed, when it's being viewed, et cetera. It just, again, to whom much is given, much is required. So continuing to talk and to unload a lot of those primarily on my spouse is quite a burden, I think, to lay on your spouse during that moment. But not all at once. Right. Not all at once. We don't, well, When I say not all at once, I also don't mean like a progressive revelation where it's just kind of like a drip, drip, drip of confession. I think there needs to be some, again, a basic framework of what happened, how long it's been going on. But again, more of those, again, just some of those exacting details about the type of things that were being done or viewed, I would say discretion and discernment needs to be had there. And again, this is where the benefit of being in relationship with an accountability partner or a pastor or an elder can be helpful because you can ask them and say, hey, you know, as I think about confessing and disclosing to my spouse, you know, what do you think would be an appropriate and an honoring amount of information for me to disclose and share. You know, I have found that once someone confesses in counseling a life addiction, whatever it is, that their confession opens the door for considerable shame. How do you help someone deal with the lingering shame once they have confessed? 
I'll give you a couple of examples of things that are helpful in terms of shame. One would be you want to help people to articulate the, the parts of their story that are especially entangled with shame because often they hide that. They don't want to own that up to other people. And it takes a huge amount of trust for someone to bring the most embarrassing parts of their life forward to someone else. So get them to speak it out and bring it out into the light and help other people to bear the weight of some of that. That would be number one. Number two, you know, in the Discovery Channel, they interviewed the cameraman and asked him, how does a cameraman, what does a cameraman on the shark show do when a shark swims at him? Well, he does the exact opposite of what everything else in the ocean does, which is swim away from the shark. He swims at the shark. That's what he says he did. And he punches it in the face. Well, why did I tell that story? Because we go after shame. We don't listen to what it says. So if you're inclined to do what shame says, it, it tells you to hide, to run, to avoid. Instead of hiding from people, you go towards people. Instead of avoiding a situation, you step into the situation. So we want to inculcate in people the instinct to do the exact opposite of what shame screams in their ear in, in that regard. But the third and most important thing is for every category of shame that the Bible establishes, and the Bible is clear that there, there is shame, and the Bible doesn't leave it ambiguous. So it outlines categories of, of shame. For example, naked and exposed, dirty and unclean, rejected and outcast, and even a sense of failure. Each one of those, we see Christ is sufficient for our shame. Mm. And, and so, you know, if, if I just pick out one, for example, like we are, we are rejected and outcasts, and yet Christ didn't reject us. What did he do? He died on the cross for us so that those who ran away from God could be accepted once again. He welcomes the outcast into his family. And so the shameful are welcomed into the kingdom of God because the Savior has died for them. And I can go through each one of those and explain how Christ is sufficient in helping us to overcome our shame, because the gospel has an answer for every one of those. And every shameful text I seem to come across in Scripture has a gospel response to it. And so we wonder if we'll run to the cross with our shame and help people to understand that. But shame is this ambiguous experience that has no definition to it, and most people don't know what to do with it. They have no idea how to in, in deal with their shame. And so, therefore, we want to help people biblically understand what to do with it, both in experience, understand how to talk about it and have safe places to open up about it and trusting people to open up with, and theology. Scripture defines, gives us categories for shame and how the gospel responds to it. So there's a lot there with shame that we think about as Christians. We don't have to just leave it to the world to tell us what to do with this. How do you know if a person you are trying to help in their battle against pornography is really addicted rather than someone who occasionally looks at pornography? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a good question, Chuck, because I think a lot of times terminology can be shameful. So when we think about, you know, language of struggler versus an addict, right, there seems to be this line that we kind of cross from someone who just maybe occasionally engages with pornography to someone who is addicted to it. And so, again, there's probably a lot of different criteria out there that might arrive at a different conclusion. 
uh, some of the things that we're thinking about when we maybe move from that, hey, I am occasionally struggling with it to moving over to addicted, you know, it comes to that sense of disordered desire that, that Deepak was talking about earlier. Uh, for a lot of addicts, they describe almost, again, that voluntary slavery that Ed Welch talks about with addiction. Of it, it doesn't even seem like I'm making a choice, although that I am, but it just seems like I'm just automatically turning to this. I'm turning to pornography in times of distress, in times of rejection, in times of uh, feeling bored, in times of feeling lust. I just am turning to this and I'm not even thinking about it. There's an almost like an automatic or a compulsivity to how I turn to pornography that for me at least would say you're you're more in line with an addict than just with somebody who's struggling, just an occasional struggle here and there. So I would be asking some of those questions about the timing, the frequency, the intensity of the desires. I would also be looking at just what has worked and what hasn't, right? Is there a sense where you were just giving yourself over to this? Um, like a like a person can give themselves over to alcohol. Are you, is there even a struggle, right? Like with the idea of a struggler, I also have the idea of there's not only a struggle towards it, but there's a struggle to get out of it. There's a battle at least. And a lot of times with addiction, there can be this sense of, you know, I'm kind of just, you know, it's just happening to me. It just, you know, this choice has been taken away from me. And so I'm trying to gauge to some degree, what is their level of commitment, their level of engagement? with this temptation and with this sin. Another thing would just be the timing of it. How long have they been struggling with this? Is this something that has just gone on for years and years? A lot of guys that we see that, you know, were in their 40s or 50s, you know, this is a struggle that began in their teen years, you know, when they were exposed. And so this has been something that almost feels like a, a very, almost like a familiar friend to them um, in some ways where it just is a part of their life. It's something that is very easily accessed and turned to during difficult times. So again, those would be just, a, I would say, a basic framework of things I would be investigating. At the end of the day, the answer or the solution is still going to be the same. It's still a gospel of Jesus Christ being applied to the individual's life, whether or not you're addicted or struggling. And so that, that at least is the good news, is that a person who's addicted to pornography uh, can experience freedom through Christ. Colossians 3 tells us that true biblical change looks like we put off sinful habits, that we are to put on the opposite biblical quality. For instance, a liar is still a liar, even though he quits lying until he starts telling the truth. A thief is still a thief until he gives back what he has stolen and more. What are some of the things a person who really wants to break the addiction of pornography, must put off. The, the, the first thing, the, the easiest thing to be able to say, and so I'll give you the thing, one thing to put off and one thing to put on, just to just fit in the framework that you just quoted from Colossians 3. First and foremost thing I often advocate is shutting down the access points. Uh, the, the, the access to pornography through the internet, because the internet is now everywhere. You can get it through your phone virtually uh, on almost every spot on the planet if you need to. Even in remote places now, they're trying to do everything they can to provide internet access. So that's, that's a problem for a generation that has been raised on technology and does not know how to have self-control with technology. So being brutal, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, to cut out your eye, 
uh, cut off your arm and gouge out your eye to be radical and aggressive with our sin and not passive with our approach to sin. And even in that section of scripture, he's dealing with sexual sin explicitly, he's talking about. So we want people to take a step of getting rid of the access points as a first step. Doesn't solve the problem, but you need to be deliberate about this. Now, you say, well, I mean, I know people who put up firewalls and get covenant eyes. Yeah, I think a lot of people know how to construct something and cut off access points to probably 50 to 80% of what they need to do. But uh, I ask a lot of strugglers if they have, at that moment, when I'm talking to them, in the back of their minds, some kind of access point that if they knew they had a weak moment, they could get to. And I'm sad how often they say yes. They still have some point still available in their life. So Garrett Kell, he wrote the excellent book, Pure in Heart, if the readers haven't uh, heard it. That is a great book. And, you know, Garrett was having lunch with one of the guys I was helping, and he held out his phone and said to that guy, I do not know how to get something on my phone. Hold a gun to my head, and I don't know how to do it. It's not because he's technologically incompetent. He's very technologically incompetent. But he has so shut down his phone and so radically cut out access points, he just doesn't know how to get there. So the rule of thumb is protect yourself from yourself when you're struggling with addictions like this. People have an, over, have an overestimation of their ability to handle sin. They, they should take it much more seriously than they do. And so, therefore, they need to, at the point of the addiction or even as they're struggling in general, cut it out to a point where they can't get to it anymore, like Garrett's example, and Jesus' standard. So that's the put off. The put on, go find the most godly person in your life and just beg them to help you. Be humble enough to find someone who loves the Lord and loves the word and say to them, I'm in a bad spot and I want to submit my life to your counsel if you're willing to invest in my life and take the time to help me. And you'd be surprised that that one step of humility is going to set you on a pathway to help them get to what may not be in a week or a month or two months or five months. But, you know, on the long term, if you're willing to go at this and persevere, a life of freedom and purity is there because we've seen it. We're not talking about it in the abstract. We've seen people recover and live in the kind of freedom that Christ intends. That's what I would say, Chuck. Listeners, I encourage you to get a copy of these two books. And we will have information about them and Kel's book in the show notes. As we wrap up, could you share one final word of encouragement to that person who is struggling? You know, the the final word I would say is something like this. I would say... Wherever you're at right now, if you're struggling with pornography, if you can understand that the core underlying lie of pornography is Satan telling you, I have something better to offer you than God does. And what I would tell you is to reject that lie and to believe this truth that God has an infinitely better plan for you, for your life, and for your well-being than to pursue that. And it's a path of flourishing. It's a path of growth in Christ. And it's a path that oftentimes is going to be difficult, but that in the end is worth it. 
And so identify the lie and believe the truth, believe the good news that Christ has given to us through his word. Pornography is cotton candy. It's a temporary sugar high that uh, that leaves guilt and shame afterwards. But Jesus has a much richer feast waiting. Mm-hmm. And so there are delights beyond imagination mm-hmm. for someone who wants to taste that and experience it in a way that is really transformative. And so we want, we want to offer that to people. We didn't write books just because we like writing books. I mean, it, it is hard work, a labor of love to get a book done and out on the market. But we did it because we are helpers ourselves coming alongside strugglers who, who have spent years in the trench with people who are hopeless, and we've seen God's transformative power. This is Chuck Batters, and you have been listening to the Help and Hope podcast, produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. You'll find links to where you can purchase rescue skills and rescue plan. Jonathan and Deepak, thank you for joining me for this conversation. Deepak, could you close our time in prayer and especially pray for that listener? who desperately wants help in his or her battle against addiction. Lord, I pray especially for the the man or woman who are listening to us right now who is hopeless, who's desperate, who's confused, who's disappointed, who's angry, and just doesn't know where to go next. And so we pray, Lord, that you would break in and give them wisdom, help them to know what the next step is and to find not only your word and open up your word and learn from your word, but to find other godly people in a local gospel preaching church that could come alongside them and help them to know the truth and know what freedom looks like. So help everyone listening to this program not to listen to the lies of Satan and give in to the carnal temptations that that grab us and enslave us, but instead to see the glories of Christ and taste it for themselves. Taste and see and know that the Lord truly is good. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Visit markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org to find additional free resources on a variety of topics. Online counseling services are also available through Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling by visiting helpandhopenow.org. That's helpandhopenow.org. Download the Help and Hope app on your mobile device. Hope is just one click away.